Friday night. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with Nazar. He's so sweet. He sent me the nicest message after he heard uh, his episode, thanking me for having him on. It really made my week. Uh, This intro is going to be fast and dirty for two reasons. One, I did just release the Nazar episode earlier this week, so I've already given you the most recent news rundown in terms of what I think we should talk about. And I don't like wasting your time with mediocre. More importantly, two, it is now 8.32 p.m. on Friday night, and it turns out I got a little ambitious this week thought I could handle all of the news and here we are, but I'm not quitting. I told you I was putting out this podcast on Washington on Friday night and probably none of you remember I said that, but I did say it and I'm determined to stick to my word. Also, I want to catch you before you get so tired of everyone talking about it in public, but listen, it's a big deal. So today's episode tonight's episode. Mike Kinsey is an old friend of mine, and he's been doing countless interviews on this new law. Coincidentally, he lives in Washington. He and his wife, Susan, they co-founded Hinsey Law back in the day. It's growing. There was a whole contingency of them at Summit. It was wild. Super talented lawyers working there, a lot of them my good friends. But anyway, Mike also advises clients who are going to need to worry about this Washington My Health, My Data Act. And the thing is, it's not just going to affect those with customers in Washington. As you'll hear, this law has reach, brah. So without further ado, here is Mike Kinsey on why Washington's My Health, My Data Act is what he calls the most consequential privacy law since CPRA. Hope this is helpful to you. Thanks for listening. Love you. Talk soon. In one of your blog posts, you had written, um, when signed, the Washington My Health, My Data Act will become the most consequential privacy legislation enacted in 2013, arguably the most consequential privacy legislation enacted since the original CCPA was adopted in 2018, with implications far beyond Washington state. So crazy, crazy. And tell us why. What's up with this law? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things here with this law, but I think fundamentally, it's unlike anything we seen before, much like the CCPA. You know, a lot of the other state laws that we've seen have followed, you know, one model or, or another. Most of them tend to be variations on Virginia, which itself was based on a combination of sort of GDPR and CCPA approaches. So, but this one is, you know, kind of completely different in a lot of ways. It goes well beyond what any other privacy law has done in a lot of ways. The other thing that I think makes it super consequential, well, two other things really, is that it is much broader than people might expect based on the name of the statute or a lot of the talk around the motivations for the statute. It was, you know, talking about dealing with this gap left by HIPAA, and HIPAA only covers covered entities, and there's a lot of health data managed outside of the scope of HIPAA and not subject to HIPAA protections, and that this law is aimed at filling those gaps. The, the challenge is, is that this law is drafted in such a way, particularly the definitions, that what would be considered consumer health data is very, very broad and, and not, not well defined, such that almost any kind of personal information could ultimately reveal something about somebody's health, particularly when you think about combining it with other um, data. Um, and so... And they were very much focused on, you know, that whole 
talking example from 10 years ago where you know, unscented lotions and, and vitamins and large handbags were used to determine a likelihood of pregnancy. And so, you know, you think about that example and you can imagine and you can a number of other examples where the purchase of a product, a, a web search, some online activity combined with another and not other elements might reveal something about somebody's health. And so what's in or outside the scope is 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 very unclear at, at the very least, but potentially covering just about anything. And you combine that with the private right of action. Um, and we, we've seen what's happened in Illinois' BIPA law with, you know, being sort of a feeding frenzy for plaintiff's lawyers, making very aggressive claims, very aggressive interpretations of the law. And that this law opens that up here, but in a much broader scope. I mean, BIPA was focused on a, a fairly well-defined set of biometric data and a fairly well-defined set of requirements. This is much, much broader than that. And, and opening up that to a big run of action is going to result in, um, you know, all of those ambiguities being argued in ways favorable to, you know, settlements. And so... The implications and the impact of this, I think, are going to be incredibly, incredibly broad. I'm curious if you can give me a little bit. I haven't been following sort of the negotiations that go on before a bill becomes a law. And I know that, like, industry is usually a pretty loud voice in the room and puts a lot of dollars behind, you know, lobbying against bills that it thinks will be tough on it, especially bills that are going to have a private right of action. Like, when we were talking, for example, well, two questions, really. One, can you give us some context into how this got through? And two, was there a lot of, I have to imagine there was a lot of debate before this actually became law, or will become law when the governor signs it, around that broad definition that could really capture like so many more transactions and so many more organizations. What was that conversation like? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that, um there certainly were conversations, and, and that issue, particularly around the definition, um, there's a lot of other you know, potentially problematic and very challenging and risky things that are in this law. We can talk about those later, but the, the bulk of that conversation was around that scope issue. Um, and you have you have people who are, you know, very motivated, very focused on pushing through this privacy bill. Felt very strongly, including the attorney general's office. Um, that there should be a private right of action. And, um, sorry, and um, a lot of the, I want to be careful here, because I don't want to take away from the intent of this, um, but, you know, you look back at that old target example where pregnancy was inferred, and, um, you look at what's happening today in the United States in light of the Dobbs decision and concerns around reproductive health and sexual health and threats to those types of healthcare services and gender affirming care. Um, and you have some very strong motivation, particularly in a progressive state like Washington, to push through something to address that. And, and you look at um, these examples of benign data types being used to infer something that can be quite sensitive. And you have sort of this, this scenario where even if you were pointing out the unintended consequences 
there was very little appetite to scale that back because of the fear that scaling it back would leave something out, right? Would put somebody at risk because some kind of data that wasn't protected by this law then was used in some way that could, you know, interfere with somebody's ability to obtain healthcare services or worse, right? And so the this being so closely tied to that agenda is, you know, in some way related to but beyond the the considerations that we're talking about when we're typically debating a privacy law. Um, made it very, very difficult for any individual company to want to stand up and say, hey, don't pass this because they didn't want to be tagged with saying, oh, you are imposing, you know, reproductive rights, you are anti-women, you know, whatever the argument would be. Um, so a lot of it went through industry associations, more sort of quiet, you know, conversations to try to just, hey, right, you know, say, hey, we're, not, we're not imposing the objectives here. But there are legitimate concerns with implementation. There are legitimate concerns with creating, um, you know, risk of lawsuits for companies that are genuinely trying to make a good faith effort to comply with these requirements. But the way it's written makes that impossible or very, very costly or very difficult. Was this bill drafted post-Dobbs or was it just, was it maybe tweaked and negotiated post-Dobbs? I believe it was drafted post-Dobbs. There may have been elements that were borrowed from before that, but it was, it was, Definitely, um, I think it was it was introduced post ops. I think it was drafted post ops. And do you think I just one more question on this? Like, and I, I'm asking you to just you know sort of guess, but do you think that um, this bill would have passed uh, with the provisions it has within it in a pre Dobbs world? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, as you're aware. There have been efforts in Washington state to pass comprehensive privacy legislation for many years. And each year it passed unanimously by, by the Senate. And then the House, it got held up because House leadership was very strongly of the position that it should have a private right, right of action. And that disconnect between the House and the Senate side, people from the same party, um, never allowed that piece of legislation to get past the finish line. A piece of legislation in fact formed the model for what became the Virginia law and then ultimately, you know, connected to Colorado, Utah, on and on and on. Um, so that model got out there. It just never could get past the finish line in Washington state. Um, there was always a concern from the industry side that a more, you know, a more narrowly focused bill, a more, you know, one that was, you know, focused on healthcare, or at least, you know, purportedly focused on healthcare, um, might be that extra public that can get into the Senate with a private right of action, which the House, you know, was on conclusion that they would approve it. Um, so I think that's what happened here. You know, pre-Dobbs or a, you know, a, a universe where Dobbs never happened, um, if that would have been enough, I don't know. It would have been close. It would have been close. There was always that risk that the Senate would say, okay, we got to do something. Um, you know, we need that. You know, we need to put Washington on the map in terms of, you know, protecting Washington's citizens and, and residents uh, with a privacy law. If we can't do it with a comprehensive one, let's let's narrow it. Let's get the private right of action in um, uh, so that it can get through the house. So, 
Um, you know, I think maybe it might have, even without Dobbs, but certainly the behind concerns um, and uh, motivations that the Dobbs created um, here in Washington State was was something that put this on a track that there was nothing that was going to stop it. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's so interesting and exciting because it feels like we haven't really had a big splash, you know, sort of as you note in your post since really CCPA and um, and maybe CPRA, but. Since then, it's like every time a bill comes out, it's like, I mean, it's Virginia plus or Virginia minus. And like, you know, there hasn't really been something that's like sort of moved the needle and gotten people shaken up, which I personally, as a bystander, love the shakeup. Uh, I know for people who are focused on helping companies uh, comply, it's a little less fun, CPOs, et cetera. Um, but I think it's a good time. Uh, okay, let's talk about, but also, yeah, so, so it's interesting to me that like Seattle, as you say, like it's a very progressive state. And like, it was finally able to do something that I feel like the other states have really struggled to do, which is to push past that like industry pushback barrier and get, you know, get not only the private right of action, but that broad definition. You even said in one of your posts that you actually think this shouldn't really be referred to as a health law. It's just like a privacy law, really, because it's so broad, right? I think that's right. And, you know, again, in definitions around what is consumer health data are, are potentially very, very broad. It includes, um, you know, things like bodily functions, which, you know, could be digestion. So, you know, it's the fact that I went to a restaurant, consumer health data. It includes uh, any information um, about a person trying to receive a healthcare service. And healthcare service is defined as um, any service that allows a, a consumer to improve or even learn about their health. And so internet searches, um, if I go into a grocery store and they're providing nutrition tips, is that a healthcare service? If I go into a clothing retailer and buy running shoes, is that a healthcare service? Arguably, yes, given how these definitions are drafted. And so anything that could even touch on wellness or nutrition or fitness or, you know, anything having to do with health, I think is potentially covered. And like I said before, creative plaintiff's lawyers can argue that almost anything will fit into that law. And so if this were being interpreted by and enforced by an attorney general, I would say, hey, you know, let's, let's make some reasonable assumptions here. But that's not the case. The, the plaintiff's lawyers have every financial incentive in the world to make very aggressive claims. And as soon as they see a company treating some kind of data as outside of the scope, they will say, but that data, you know, when they make this next purchase the next week, is going to reveal something um, about health, and therefore that should have been in. And therefore, you know, here's the class action claim. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the example that comes to mind is when I look, I have an FSA, you know, and when I look at the list of eligible things that technically count as a healthcare product, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I would never, I would never consider billing to my FSA, but they're like, you can purchase this. It's considered a health product. So I can see a world where that would be true. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, you said a drafting error actually um, could could cause this to come into scope much earlier than it's supposed to, which is March 31, 2024. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, so the original House version of this bill did not have an effective date as part of it. And under Washington state law, when a bill does not have an effective date, it comes into effect 90 days after the close of the session. 
and a session just closed. And so that would mean late July 2023. And again, if this were being interpreted by the attorney general and enforced by the attorney general, I would say, you know, it was pretty clear that was the intent of the legislature to have this whole section come into effect. That's not actually what it says, though. You know, that's not how the English language works. You can't just infer it on these independent sections. So um, I worry that a court will look at that and interpret that as those other requirements coming into effect 90 days after the session. And if I were plaintiff's lawyers, I would start sending out claims, um, you know, this July. Well, first of all, if that's true and it's a drafting error, who's putting Larry in charge of drafting laws now that don't have effective dates? And secondly, if it's not a drafting error and it was more nefarious or it was intentional, I won't call it nefarious, but it was intentional, like, why there's yeah. that's no there's no time for anyone to get their ducks in a row like that's just what well that's i mean i understand i believe that the geofencing provision was intentional i believe the other ones were unintentional um so the why i, I don't think that was intentional um because in some cases it doesn't even make sense it doesn't make sense like the section that requires a notice. This, this this law requires you to have a separate privacy notice for consumer health data that has a number of articulated things in it, which are going to be largely or entirely redundant of what's in your general privacy notice, but this seems to require a separate notice for consumer health data and a separate link in the, on the homepage. The section that requires you to have the notice will clearly come into effect March 31st, 2024. The subsection that requires you to have a link in your home, in your on your homepage arguably will come into effect in July 2023. Um, so, well, hey, you've got a ton of time to build the link. Well, no, 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 you have to have the link in three, you know, three months from now. Oh, but you have, you have to have, have the policy period. a year from now. So I think you have to have a link that would go to a page that says coming soon. Yeah. It's all of a sudden like a movie preview. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, well, that's that's in, in, the, in the section that sets out data subject rights, the right to access will come into effect March 31st, 2024. The right to delete seemingly could come into effect in July 2023. And the right to delete is um, very, very challenging because it does not have the common exceptions that are found in virtually every, well, not virtually, that's found in every other privacy law that has a right to delete. For example, there is no exception for compliance with law. So when you have a legal data retention obligation and a consumer comes and asks you to delete that data, there's no exception. You either have to choose to violate this law's data, data deletion obligation or choose to violate another law's data retention obligation. And in fact, as I said in one of my blog posts, there is a data retention obligation under this law that will come into a, that will create a conflict with itself because there's there's a requirement to retain a record of an authorization to sell data, and that authorization needs to have the needs to specify the consumer health data that's being sold. And so if you have an obligation to retain that record of the sale authorization and somebody comes in and says, delete all my consumer health data, you have to choose whether to violate that obligation to delete the data 
or violate that obligation to retain a copy of that authorization. And the uh, the attorneys are just waiting outside with nets to catch like whichever flaw you decide, <laughs> whichever mistake you decide to make. Exactly. So in one of your posts, you focus a lot on consent requirements. Why? What's important here for the, on those? Well, the, 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 the Act deals with consent in a couple of different ways. Um, first of all, it defines consent in GDPR way. So it has to be you know, specific, unambiguous, uh, affirmative act by the consumer. It can't be bundled with other uh, consents. It can't be part of the terms of use. So for every you know, particular thing for which you're asking consent, there has to be essentially a separate uh, consent requirement or, or consent experience. So, um, and then there's a section that says if the consent is required for any collection or sharing of information beyond what is necessary to provide a product or service that was requested by the consumer. So if it's necessary to provide a consumer requested product or service, you don't need consent. But for anything beyond that, you do. And, and that specific requirement is, is for the collection or, or the sharing. But collection is defined in a very odd and non-transparent way. Collection means not only to collect or gather or obtain in some way, it also includes any processing of personal information. So any use of data is a collection of data. Um, any storage of data is a use of data. Any or is a collection of data. Any analysis of data is a collection of data. Any deletion of data, which is a form of processing, is a quote collection of data. So this consent for any collection beyond which is necessary to provide a consumer requested product or service is incredibly broad and will apply to a lot of routine operational uses of personal data. Um, and so you need affirmative specific consent for every one of those. So it's an incredibly broad application of consent, broader than really any other. Uh, I mean, GDPR has lots of options other than consent, particularly, you know, where there's a legitimate interest, which covers a lot of those same routine, benign operational purposes. Um, lots of other laws that have consent requirements have exceptions for consent for a lot of specified purposes. This does anything beyond what is necessary to provide a consumer requested product or service will, will require consent. There's one specific exception for some security-related purposes, but that's really the only exception in here. So um, there's that. And then for anything that would constitute um, a, quote, sale of consumer health data uh, requires a, what's called an authorization, and I call this opt-in consent on steroids. Um, this is, and they use the definition from CCPA of sale. So uh, transfer of data for any monetary or other valuable consideration. That other valuable consideration piece has been interpreted very broadly under the CCPA to include essentially any third-party online advertising, right? Because data has been transferred to third parties and the benefit that comes back to the publisher that, that allows that data to be collected and used. So that would constitute a sale. No reason to think that the sale wouldn't be interpreted the same way here because they use those same words. The authorization that is required for a sale, remember in CCPA, that's an opt-out. Here, not only is it an opt-in, 
it requires an authorization that is so onerous, it's unrealistic, right? It, it has a number of things that need to be in this document that needs to be signed by the consumer. It can be signed digitally, but it needs to be signed by the consumer. The document needs to lay out a number of specified things. It has to specify the specific consumer health data that's being sold. It needs to have the name and the contact information of the seller and each buyer. Um, and, and, you know, it goes on and on and on things that has to specify and it expires after one year. Um, and the, both the seller and the buyer have to retain this authorization document for six years. And it can be revoked at any time. So, I mean, it is so onerous. It is a bad and effective prohibition. And remember earlier I mentioned that it creates this litigation trap that if you give an authorization and then you later request to have your consumer health data um, deleted, that authorization contains the consumer health data and there is an obligation to retain it for six years. So what does the company do? Which provision do they violate? So again, this is a litigation trap. If a plaintiff's lawyer sees any company seeking these authorizations, all they need to do is find a plaintiff to, to grant the authorization and then a couple of days later make a deletion request and the company will inevitably violate one of the obligations. So, I mean, in a time when we're talking about, are we done with cookie banners? Like now we're actually going to need like cookie, like posters with like all of the disclosures in there, the customers have to click, like accept, like how that's just, that's a net, what, how does a company even think about starting to capture all of those? Well, one, they shouldn't because of that litigation track creates. If you, if you try to get that authorization, you'll get sued. Period. So you can't. Full stop. So how's this going to work? I don't think I'm exaggerating too much here. I think this is a ban on targeting to advertising. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about a very broad scope of data that is, you know, well beyond what we think about as traditional health data. But even if we were talking about traditional health data, the, the concern here is that, well, there's a lot of concerns here. One, it's just going to be very costly to implement, costly in terms of, new tools to try to seek the consents that are necessary here, even if we're not talking about the sale authorization, just the, the consent for other uses. Costly in terms of lost opportunities uh, to use data in positive ways. Um, and, and costly in terms of perhaps making certain services um, and certain health-related services prohibitively expensive. It will take away the ability for a lot of companies to provide a free advertising supported tier for some of these services. Um, and so that the implications of this are, you know, wide ranging and we don't quite know what those will look like yet, but I think they're pretty profound, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I called this, you know, probably the most consequential privacy legislation since the original CCPA in 2018. I have to, I mean, I know it's passed and there's no indication the governor will veto, but I have to imagine that like the data broker industry, the ad tech groups are like freaking out right now. I mean, we haven't seen a, a bill that we could call an actual, you know, sort of ban on targeted advertising yet. And it seems like we're trying to like maneuver around how we're going to be able to continue doing targeted advertising yeah. in ways that are like palatable to the public and regulators and allow people to still make money. But there must be 
a lot of people working some late hours right now trying to figure out what yeah, to do. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there, there are possible avenues, but all of those involve some making some assumptions and guesswork about how courts will ultimately rule on some of the ambiguities of this bill. Um, you know, is there something that can be done in the advertising space that, you know, aggregates data in some way such that it would be, you know, considered de-identified? Is there, you know, something that can be done to make these consent requirements actually, you know, implementable without, you know, a, a, a very high risk of, of putting yourself, you know, uh, in the sights of the, of the plaintiff's class action law? You know, what are, what are the paths forward? I don't think, I don't think there's any obvious, easy answer. And I think all of the answers that may seem reasonable um, are still risky given the prior right of action. And are the, um, are the fines statutory like in, in BIPA or like, yeah, is this it? Is the, 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 the violation of this act is, Actionable as a violation of the existing Washington Consumer Protection Act. Um, and there are some presumptions that are made in this act that if a violation of this act is, is found, that certain of the elements of the Consumer Protection Act are presumed to be met. You still need to prove causation and harm. And the there are statutory penalties, um, and there uh, is a a provision for recovery of form, which I think can be tripled um, in, under certain circumstances. So, um, you know, there's still some barrier for plaintiffs' lawyers. They still have to show show some harm. And, you know, maybe that's something that people will rely on that, you know, a lot of these things, you know, this kind of routine operational purposes that may technically require consent under this law, you know, purely internal uses, is there harm there? You know, I'm sure a plaintiff's lawyer will argue that, you know, it's, it, it somehow harms a plaintiff to know that their data is being, you know, used in some way that they didn't approve of, um, you know, whether the well, that recent There was that recent case where the employee won a BIPA case because she said that like the harm was the actual collection of the data. And yeah. so then the company got slammed for every time she logged in with her thumbprint yeah. because they said like that was technically the harm, which is like, which was a big deal in like BIPA lit litigation. Cause it's like, Oh crap. Like if you get counted for every single time yeah. you actually use that fingerprint, like that adds up really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, so there is inevitably going to be a lot of litigation under this, under this act. Um, because there are, you know, so many different provisions that potentially lead to, um, you know, class action litigation or, or, you know, claims against companies from the consent requirements to these very onerous um, data subject rights, particularly the de deletion right, but even the access right has um, some obligations that go beyond what we've seen before and will require companies to put in uh, new tooling and processes to deal with. Um, you know, the, the notice requirements, the geofencing requirements, um, you know, all of these are potential avenues for, for litigation, which I think we're going to see 
probably more litigation than we've seen in bank on, which Gary said before, is a relatively narrow and, and well-defined um, act and, and set of requirements. So um, a lot of these things will be worked out in the course. And a lot of these ambiguities where, you know, the effect may seem to be not completely in line with the intent, you know, maybe courts will, you know, drive some reasonable interpretations. But in the meantime, companies are going to be struggling to not want to be that test case. How do we avoid, um, you know, doing something that's going to, you know, get the attention of the plaintiff's bar to be like that, that, that company that is going to be the test case or that company where, you know, plaintiffs are just trying to get quick settlements because the company doesn't have the resources or the inclination to fight it. Making some assumptions and guesswork about how courts will ultimately rule on some of the ambiguities of this bill. Um, you know, is there something that can be done in the advertising space that, you know, aggregates data in some way such that it would be, you know, considered de-identified? Is there, you know, something that can be done to make these consent requirements actually you know, implementable without, you know, a, a, a very high risk of, of putting yourself, you know, uh, in the sights of the, of the plaintiff's class action. You know, what are, what are the paths forward? I don't think, I don't think there's any obvious, easy answer. And I think all of the answers that may seem reasonable um, are still risky given the prior right of action. And are the um, are the fines statutory, like in in BIPA, or like yeah, is it this is the, 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 the violation of this act is actionable as a violation of the existing Washington Consumer Protection Act, um, and there are some presumptions that are made in this act that if a violation of this act is is found, that certain of the elements of the Consumer Protection Act are presumed to be met. You still need to prove causation and harm. And the there are statutory penalties um, and there uh, is a, a provision for recovery of harm, which I think can be tripled um, in, in certain circumstances. So, um, you know, there's still some barrier for plaintiff's lawyers. They still have to show, show some harm. And, you know, maybe that's something that people will rely on that, you know, a lot of these things, you know, this kind of routine operational purposes that may technically require consent under this law, you know, purely internal uses. Is there harm there? You know, I'm sure a plaintiff's lawyer will argue that, you know, it's it, it somehow harms a plaintiff to know that their data is being, you know, used in some way that they didn't approve of. Um, you know, whether the well, there was that recent, there was that recent case where the employee won a BIPA case because she said that like the harm was the actual collection of the data. And yeah. so then the company got slammed for every time she logged in with her thumbprint yeah. because they said like that was technically the harm, which is like, which was a big deal in like BIPA lit- litigation. Cause it's like, Oh crap. Like if you get counted for every single time yeah. you actually use that fingerprint, like that adds up really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, so there's inevitably going to be a lot of litigation under this, under this act. Um, 
because there are you know so many different provisions that could potentially lead to um, you know class action litigation or, or you know claims against companies from the consent requirements to these very onerous um, data subject rights, particularly the deletion right, but even the access right has um, some obligations that go beyond what we've seen before and will require companies to put in uh, new tooling and processes to deal with. Um, you know, the, the notice requirements, the geofencing requirements, um, you know, all of these are potential avenues for, for litigation, which I think we're going to see probably more litigation than we've seen in Bank of, which you said before, is a relatively narrow and, and well-defined um, act and, and set of requirements. So um, a lot of these things will be worked out in the courts. And a lot of these ambiguities where, you know, the effect may seem to be not completely in line with the intent, you know, maybe courts will, you know, drive some reasonable interpretations. But in the meantime, companies are going to be struggling to not want to be that test case. How do we avoid, um, you know, doing something that's going to, you know, get the attention of the plaintiff's bar to be like that, that, that company that is going to be the test case or that company where, you know, plaintiffs are just trying to get quick settlements because the company doesn't have the resources or the inclination to fight it. There's another interesting thing about how the definitions work that could potentially make the definition of consumer broader than what might be uh, understood on its face. So consumers that whose data may be collected and processed include um, you know consumers who are residents of Washington or consumers whose health data is collected in Washington. Those both seem to make a ton of sense, right? If somebody lives here, they'd be captured, or if they travel here to obtain a healthcare service, they'd be captured. But remember I said earlier, the definition of collect is weird because it's not just collect, it includes process. So this covers any consumer whose information is processed in Washington state. And where are the largest, some of the largest cloud providers? important in Washington State with large data center footprints in Washington State. So a resident, sorry, a person who has no connection to Washington State, has never been to Washington State, has data collected outside of Washington State, that consumer may be covered by this law if that data is merely processed in Washington State. So, oh, Lord. so that also dramatically uh, broadens the scope and broadens the potential class and for class action litigation to consumers across the country and around the world, frankly. Um, so it's it's potentially, again, much bigger and broader than it appears on its face. You got to check those third-party vendor relationships, people. Where are you processing that data? Exactly, which, you know, I think is, is super interesting because we've certainly seen privacy laws drive data, you know, where data residency concerns before. You know, GDPR, there's an incentive to, you know, keep your data in your so you don't have to deal with the, the data export restrictions. Here, a Washington state law may be driving data outside of Washington. People might be working with their cloud service providers to make sure that their data 
is not processed in a data center in Washington because that would otherwise, you know, bring in um, under the scope of this law and the risks inherent in it, um, data, a lot of data that wouldn't have to be subject to the law.